Morning, everyone. Uh, I learned something um, new about my wife recently. This is uh, no, it's n it's nothing. It's nothing like that. It's, it's it's a little thing. It's a little thing. She told me that um, when she reads books, that she uh, quite often will read the last page first. Does anybody else do that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's a lot of tension. Could start a debate and discussion right here, I think, about this. Wow, I didn't think it would be that contentious. Um, yeah, I did not know that about, uh, about my wife. Um, and it's not something that I've ever done or engaged with. I think that's... But also, as well, I am the type of person who qu quite likes a spoiler. So I do uh, actually, I, I know I've confessed this to you before, but I often read the plot of films before I watch it. I know it's terrible, isn't it? Because I, I think it's that sense of I don't like to be spoiled or I don't like to be shocked. It's terrible, isn't it? I'm getting lots of nods over there. But in a sense, what we're doing this morning is we are going to peek a little bit at the future. We are going to peek at the last pages. We talked last week about the first pages. And then we, we entered into the tabernacle. And this week, we are, in a sense, instead of looking back towards the Garden of Eden, we're actually going to look forward. We're going to peek a little bit at the future. Last week, we began looking at this, this thing called the tabernacle. And the, the people of Israel are currently camped at the foot of Mount Sinai. And their leader, Moses, has gone up to the mountain into the presence of God. And we read last week how God gave Moses the, the plans and these, these intricate designs for this sacred space called the tabernacle. And it's in incredibly intricate detail. And God wanted the people to build this sacred space for him so that he might dwell close to them. That was, that was the idea, that they may enjoy a greater sense of intimacy and communion with him. That's what the tabernacle means. It, it means a, a dwelling place, or literally it means a tent. And we mentioned that this touches on a theme that runs throughout the Bible, this theme of God wanting to dwell near to us. God wanting to dwell near to humanity. God's presence being near his people. And we looked at how the tabernacle was, was similar to the Garden of Eden in the, the book of Genesis, where, where God created a space for humans to be close to him in relationship and in intimacy and to enjoy his presence. But through humanity's rejection and disobedience, they are, and we are in a sense, cast out of God's presence. But they leave the garden with a promise, the promise being that his presence, God's presence, would one day dwell with humanity Again, And this promise was to be fulfilled through the people of Israel, who we are currently reading about in the book of Exodus. Now, we saw last week how the tabernacle was to take the, the form of a tent, which had two distinct uh, sections within it. And I think there's going to be a, a diagram on, on the screen in a moment showing that. There was to be an outer courtyard bordered by uh, a boundary wall or fence. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I think we're having some tech issues, but there'll be a diagram in a moment on that. And then within, in a particular section of the tent, God would dwell. His very sacred, holy presence would dwell. And it would fill the place. Now, last week we looked at, and in some way, we walked around the tabernacle. We walked around the outer courtyard, and we looked at the, the bronze altar and the bronze basin, which were used by the priests to sacrifice animals and then to to be able to enter the sanctuary, and, and, and we're going to touch a bit more about that next week. Andy's going to take us through the, the priesthood, and we're going to learn about what role they played in the life of Israel. But for us this morning, we are, metaphorically speaking, we're standing before the curtain of the tabernacle. 
we're standing next to the basin, next to the basin before the curtain of the tabernacle. We're about to enter the space. This is this is not this is not the tabernacle. All right. I promise you. Israel did not drive Ford Fiestas and say this is it's not. That is not the idea here at all. Okay. Though I did look into the size of the tabernacle this week. And actually, the tabernacle would, in some ways, have fitted in this main hall. It's actually smaller than you would think. But I promise you, Regent Chapel is not the tabernacle. Well, in a sense, it is. And we'll talk about that later as well. We are about to enter the space where only priests were allowed to go. Hey! Thanks, gents. Thanks, gents, at the back. We are about to enter the space where only priests were allowed to go. We're about to enter this sacred and special place. And this morning we are going to walk through into the inner space, which Rachel was touching on. We're going to walk into this inner space where God is. And we're going to look at the idea of the tabernacle and look at God's presence and look at what that means for us today. So we're just going to read out a portion from Exodus chapter 40. So this section that, that we're about to read, it follows on from the design <clears throat> and the making of the tabernacle and, and its components. And they're, now, they're about to construct the tabernacle. And so God says this to Moses and to the people. So if you just turn with me to Exodus chapter 40. If we haven't got a Bible, you can listen aloud as I read it. Exodus chapter 40, verses 1 to 8. Then the Lord said to Moses, set up the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, on the first day of the first month. Place the ark of the covenant law in it and shield the ark with the curtain. Bring in the table and set out what belongs on it. Then bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps. Place the gold altar of incense in front of the ark of the covenant law and put the curtain at the entrance to the tabernacle. Place the altar of burnt offering in front of the entrance to the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. Place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. Set up the courtyard around it and put the curtain at the entrance to the courtyard. <clears throat> so we have now come. There we go. There's a picture. There's, a, there's a, a, a scale model of what the tabernacle would look like. So we have come here. We're standing next to the basin outside and we're looking at the curtain about to enter the tabernacle. Now, the frame or the structure was made of wood specifically a case here, and there's a diagram there kind of peeling back a bit of the layers and showing you the different pillars and the foundations of the structure of the tabernacle. It was made of wood, specifically acacia wood, and that was common in the region of Mount Sinai. And here, the tabernacle was about 45 feet long, 15 feet wide, and 15 feet high. So it's actually smaller than this hall, in a sense. It had no solid roof but uh, was actually overlain with four layers of cloth made from ram skin, goat skin leather, and twisted linen. And the wooden pillars or boards which made up the structure were then covered in gold, as you can see on the diagram, and laid in bases of large blocks of silver weighing about 90 pounds each. Now notice here, as we move into the tabernacle, closer to God's presence, the materials are becoming much more precious, aren't they? Much more valuable, much purer. The furnishings in the courtyard were bronze, but now we're seeing silver and gold appear. 
And gold, of course, uh, it's, it gives us that sense of uniqueness and, and sacredness of expense and of worth and importance. This was a, a special place where someone special lived and dwelt. I was looking this week, the estimated cost of the tabernacle today would be about 10 million US dollars. Gives it gives a, a real sense, and that's including the towel, the furnishings, the priestly garments, all of all of it. But ten million dollars, giving the sense of the worth and the value of the person who dwelled inside it. Of course, today as well as in the cultures of the time, gold spoke of royalty and it spoke of the dwelling place of deities or gods. And in a sense, that is what the tabernacle was to be: this ta- uh, this sacred tented space was meant to be a gateway between heaven and earth. That's what the tabernacle was. And so as you left the courtyard, you entered the first section through a beautiful curtain, through a curtain that was made from blue, purple, and scarlet uh, dyed yarns. It was woven together with fine linen. And again, those colors are meant to signify royalty, the blues and the purples and the scarlets. And then you go through the curtain into the holy place, and you were entering closer to the presence of God. And so again, we get that sense of separateness, don't we? That sense of exclusivity. It was only actually the priests and the high priests that could enter through this curtain. Now, in this first section of the tent, you have three items or pieces of furniture, all of which actually you'd find in a, in a generic home, in a sense. Even today, because this was, in effect, to be God's house, God's dwelling place. So inside the holy place uh, was a table with bread on it to your right, a lampstand to your left, and an altar of incense in front of you. Now, I'm sure many of you don't have altars in your house. That would be surprising. I'm not sure many of you have altars, but I'm sure many of you do have light. You do have a table with food on it, and you do have things that smell nice. Sweet-smelling aromas. I've been to many of your houses. They smell great. Once went to Rachel Watson's house, and it smelled amazing. And it was when Rob and Sarah were moving in, wasn't it? And I text Rob saying, can you ask Rachel what, what she uses? Because the house smelled amazing. And then me and Emily went out and bought it the next week. It was great. So our house smells like Rachel Watson. So if Rachel Watson ever asks you to go to her house, go to it. It smells great. So it smells great. So let's start with the table. Well, why a table with bread on it, first of all? It was called the table for the bread of the presence, or the table of showbread. And again, it was made of wood overlaid with pure gold. And atop the table was, was 12 uh, flat loaves of bread, which were, in a sense, to symbolize the, the people of Israel. God's people at this point were split into tribes based on who they were descended from. Uh, and the 12 tribes all looked back to one of the 12 sons of Jacob, who was the grandson of Abraham. So you have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons, making up the 12 tribes of Israel. The loaves of bread were to be an offering to God, reminding the people of his presence with them and also his provision for them. And the bread was eaten by the priests um, every Sabbath, every seventh day. And the bread was also to show the sense of God communing with his people. Hinted. God communing with his people. God taking something in common with them. And then to your left, you would see a lampstand. And it was made of one piece hammered out of solid gold. The stem of it rested on a base with six branches, three on either side, stretching out. 
each carrying a lamp. So there would be seven lamps in all, including the stem. And it was shaped like a flowering almond tree with buds, blossoms, and petals on each branch. And the lamps were, fill uh, the lamps were filled with olive oil, with a wick on the top. And it, of course, provided light within the tabernacle, and the priests were to keep it burning continuously. But it was the only source of light in the tabernacle. And something else to note is that the lampstand was to act, in a sense, and it does look like it, like a tree. It was to act as a symbol of a tree, again, likely recalling the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. It's another image, harkening back to the Garden of Eden, two spaces where God dwelt with his people, Eden and the tabernacle. And then straight ahead of you, you would see and you would smell a small altar. Again, made of wood and overlaid with gold. And, and incense is burning, and it would burn morning and evening. It was not for sacrifice like the bronze altar in the courtyard. It only burnt sweet-smelling uh, incense which rose to God. It was for worship and the incense itself again was, was actually designed by God. You can read about that in Exodus. He is actually the one who designs the actual incense and what goes inside. And it was also to represent the people's prayers of, of, of the people's prayers ascending into the presence of God. As the incense was burning, it would have blown in through the curtain to the throne. That's the sense of what's going on. The incense, the prayers of the people flowing into the presence of God. Now, this veil or curtain is similar to the one that separates the courtyard from the holy place, but with a difference. This veil or curtain has something embroidered on it, and you can just about see it in the picture. It is embroidered with these beautiful and mysterious creatures called cherubim or cherubim. These creatures are spoken about several times in the Bible, and yet we don't really kind of know a lot about them. We know bits. Things we do know is that they are angelic beings who dwelt close to the presence of God and sung worship and sing worship and praise to him. But something else we know about them is that part of their role is guarding the presence of God. And so if you remember when Adam and Eve are exiled from the Garden of Eden, in Genesis, God places a creature at the edge or, or the entrance of that garden to guard the garden where God's presence was and to guard the tree of life. That creature is a cherubim. We read about it in Genesis chapter 3. So the Lord God banished humanity from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. It's not God they're guarding, though. God doesn't need guarding. But in a sense, it's guarding humanity from entering his presence unworthily. So these creatures embroidered on the curtain are to remind the priest that behind the curtain dwells the very presence of God. And is so not to be taken lightly. So what's behind this curtain? Well, one thing lays behind the curtain, something that is referenced in popular culture, and if you've um, watched the fantastic Indiana Jones film series, not accurate, but um, you will have at least heard of it, and it was something called the Ark of the Covenant. It was the only piece of furniture in the most holy place. I think there's one slide before that, actually, Emmanuel. That's the one, yeah. Cool. 
The ark itself was again made of, of wood, overlaid with pure gold, and effectively it was a chest. It was a box. It was just under four feet long and two and a half feet wide and high. It was fairly small. And within this chest, or within the ark, was placed two stone tablets which had, which had the Ten Commandments inscribed upon them to represent the actual covenant or agreement that had been established and had been signed. It was then placed in the ark of the covenant. And then the lid of this ark, or chest, was deeply important. It was a solid gold slab that sat on the top of the ark. And this lid was called the mercy seat or the atonement cover. And on it were those creatures again, cherubim. And they are made of gold, and they're facing each other, but their wings are stretched out over the mercy seat, over the lid of the ark. And the cherubim's faces are facing down, out of reverence and out of awe. And it was here, between the cherubim, that God's presence was. And it was from here that he spoke with Moses, who represented the people. And we're going to learn a bit more about that in the future weeks. But actually, this most holy place where only the ark was, it was only the high priest that could enter the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. Only the high priest. And he could only do it once a year during a specific festival called the Day of Atonement, which was when he would take the blood of an animal and sprinkle it upon the lid of the ark, upon the mercy seat. Atonement means to cover over. And so when God saw the blood upon the mercy seat, which was sometimes called the atonement cover, the people's sins were covered over. When he saw the blood placed by the high priest onto the mercy seat, it was a sense of covering over the people's sins. The most holy place was, and I think there is going to be a picture, there you go, thanks Emmanuel, of the of, a, of an image of, a, of the high priest putting the blood on the mercy seat. The most holy place was, in effect, to be like the throne room of a monarch, which is what God was to be to the people. He was their leader. He was their chief. He was their king. It is why, which we find out later, the camp was sat around the tabernacle with God in the center, in their midst, like a chief of a tribe. The gold and the imagery of Eden, like the cherubim, was meant to symbolize the holy and special presence and power of God. And the ark, which God dwelt above, was in effect the footstool of his throne. Reaching down from heaven to earth as a gateway, the ark acted as the footstool of God's throne. And it's flanked by the angels or cherubim. Isaiah chapter 37 says this. Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim. You alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. The ark was to be his throne or the footstool of it. And so as you walk through the courtyard into the holy place and then into the most holy place, the materials become purer and more valuable, moving from wood to bronze to solid gold. And the tabernacle was, in effect, the tented pl palace of Israel's divine king. That's what the tabernacle was meant to be, him enthroned upon the Ark of the Covenant. The colors, the materials, and all the imagery are all to symbolize the majesty of this ruler, that this God, this is the God who leads us. He is the one who reigns. 
It was a sacred or tented holy palace. Or a palace temple, if you like. Portable for the people of God as they travel towards the land promised to them by him. These tent dwellers were joined by their God who pitched his tent. They were tent dwellers, the Israelites. And so God says, oh, I'll come join you and I'll pitch my own tent. But God's presence did not stay in the tabernacle. As I said earlier, the theme of God's presence runs throughout the unified story of the Bible. And the tabernacle was, in a sense, for a season. The next step after the Garden of Eden. But then we read in Exodus chapter 40, that God's presence does fill the tabernacle. There's the passage on the screen there. The cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would be set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night, in the sight of all the Israelites doing all their travels. God's glory fills the tabernacle, and his presence is symbolized by cloud and fire. And he leads the people on. When the cloud moved from the tabernacle, the people followed. And when it stopped, they set up camp. This happens through all of their journeys. But when the people entered the promised land, eventually the tabernacle was replaced by a building with a similar layout to the tabernacle with sections, with furnishings and valuable materials and a curtain to separate the holy places. And that, of course, was constructed in one permanent location. And this, of course, is the temple built in Jerusalem. The tabernacle becomes the temple in a fixed location. But as the story of the Bible records... Israel, God's people, kept getting things wrong, which encourages me because I keep getting things wrong as well. They kept getting things wrong. They kept forgetting and rejecting the God who they sought to worship until the point when God's presence actually leaves the temple. And the temple actually eventually destroyed and then rebuilt, and that's what the Old Testament period covers. And so that promise that God would one day dwell with all people all humanity that was spoken about in Genesis, that he was going to achieve this all through the people of Israel, it's just left hanging there, that promise, yet to be fulfilled. And then over 1,400 years after the tabernacle was first built, a baby's cry is heard from a side room in Bethlehem. And a name is whispered to be given to this child, Emmanuel which means God with us. Jesus Christ is born in a side room in Bethlehem. God actually comes down again. And he dwells near us again. In our likeness he becomes, just like Israel were tent dwellers, so God dwells in a tent. But this was different. This was new. This was unique because just as we are flesh and blood, God put on flesh and blood. God becomes a man. And John chapter 1 says this, the word Jesus became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and full of truth. 
the Greek word for made his dwelling means literally pitched his tent. God pitched his tent among us. Just like he did with Israel centuries before. He tabernacled among us. It is in Jesus that God can be truly now encountered. It was Jesus who said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. When we look at Jesus, we look at God. And it was Jesus who said that his death and his resurrection would be the means by which we can enter God's presence again. And so then we fast forward. Bear in mind there is still a temple in Jerusalem. And there is a man, Jesus, hanging on a cross, the God-man, crucified, stripped and beaten and hung on a Roman cross. And as he breathes his last, we read something truly astonishing. When Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And we learn from the gospel account of John what Jesus actually cried in that loud voice. It is finished. That curtain that separated all but the high priest, and that for once uh, a year was split from top to bottom, from heaven to earth. God breaks open the curtain and says, it is finished. Come close to me. God says and declares, the son who I love and I sent for you has made atonement, has made cover for your sins. You are clean, you are pure, you are free. Come and enjoy my presence. Jesus, our great high priest, as it says in the book of Hebrews, has gone past the curtain or the veil and has made us right with God. Hebrews 9 says this, but when Christ came as high priest over the good things that are now already here, He went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, is not part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus attaining eternal redemption. Redemption means uh, being saved or being set free. Jesus has freed us to to bring us into God's presence. But the theme continues because something else astonishing happens because Jesus then says, whoever follows me is part of God's new temple. This thing called the church. You might have heard of it. The church is now the gateway between heaven and earth. You feel that this morning? The church is now the gateway between heaven and earth. The church is now where God's presence is seen and felt and experienced. How? Because when you follow Jesus and give your life to him, the Holy Spirit of God makes his dwelling inside of you. Ephesians 2 says this, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. 
that same God who dwells in unapproachable light, who fills the tabernacle with cloud and fire and glory. He dwells inside of you. Not only are we God's temple as we gather as the people of God, but we are individually God's dwelling place. You are a tabernacle. You are a temple. And so where does this leave us this morning? As we've journeyed through the tabernacle and into the presence of God, and we've seen how Jesus has fulfilled and superseded the tabernacle, and he is our, our high priest who has brought us brought down the tabernacle curtain and brought us close to God's presence, that there is now no longer need for animal sacrifice or sacred tents because Jesus dwells in us by his Holy Spirit. What does this mean? What does it mean that we as Jesus followers, the church, are now the gateway between heaven and earth where God is seen and met with and experienced? What does that actually mean? So just some questions for us then to reflect on this morning. Firstly, God dwelt in the, the midst. He dwelt in the middle of the Israelite camp. He was at the center as their king and as their chief. His presence could be seen by the people. And the surrounding nations could see his presence by the pillar of cloud and fire. Is God at the center of your life? Is your camp, your life, built around him? Or is he a tag on to your day or a tag on to your week, an afterthought? Someone that we only think about on a Sunday morning, but tomorrow when we wake up, I won't really be giving much time. Is he our top priority? Is he the most important relationship that we have? Is he your number one? Is he your king? And if he's not, what is stopping him from being that? Would the people in your life look at your camp, your life, and see God's presence? Do they see Jesus in you? Do they get that sense of God dwelling inside you? Just, just like the incense in the tabernacle, do you, do you carry that aroma of God as you go about your day? Secondly, do you believe that you are truly accepted in God's sight, God the acceptor? That he can't love you more than he does right now? We sometimes become very religious in our walk with Jesus. We, we lose sight of our security in him and we, we lose sight of our acceptance in him. That we are children of God, we are saints, we are holy ones. Yes, and we sometimes mess up. But we approach God as a father and he receives us with a heart of forgiveness and a heart of restoration. But sometimes we often lose sight of our identity, of who you are in Christ. Accepted, secure, and significant in him and to him. Stand firm in that identity, church. Stand firm in that identity of the gospel. You are not worthless. And you are not useless to God. You are first and foremost his creation. He delights in you and he delights to have a deeper relationship with you. Believe that because it's the truth. He loves spending time with you. What did I say last week? He likes you. He likes you. Stand firm in that identity. 
to not believe the lies that would keep you away from God, that he's displeased with you, that he's frustrated with you, that he's ang an angry being who's just waiting for you to slip up and get you. It's not the God we serve. It's not the God we know. He is our Father. He is pure, and he is holy, and he is just. But if you're in Jesus, you've been made right with him. That's who you are. Peace with God, who dwells near and in you. The Israelites began the book of Exodus as slaves in a foreign land, broken and chained and burdened. They end the book as God's chosen people, in close and intimate relationship with him, dwelling in their midst from slaves to, in effect, sons and daughters of God. That's the journey. Yeah, they get it wrong, and we'll look at that in the next couple of weeks. But their identity has changed, and that's our story too. No longer slaves to sin in this world, but God's child adopted and brought into the blessings of heaven. Thirdly then, and finally, the desire to be holy and godly in our living. It's a marathon. It's not a sprint. Praise the Lord. It's a marathon, not a sprint. We will get things wrong. We will mess up, but our desires, or our desires should not be to give up or become apathetic about sinful behavior or sinful tendency or sinful habits. That should not be our response. We are the temple of God, the stronghold of his truth, his representatives in his world, his true image bearers. How are we bearing God's image at present? Are there attitudes of sin that we need to confess to God, to, to name and get out in the open, to, to let God deal with them and help you overcome them? Is there a sinful pattern of behavior that God is bringing to your mind which he is challenging you on and wants to see you set free from. If there is, confess it to him and ask for the help and the strength to overcome it and maybe even confess it to someone you know who you trust who can pray for you and encourage you and, and keep you accountable. It's not very British, that, is it? Be open and vulnerable, but that's what the church is to be. We're all just trying to get through, trying to fix our eyes on Jesus. No one's better than the rest. We're all struggling. We're all trying to get through. Let's be a community who supports and encourages and be open. What measures do you need to put in place to guard yourself from sin? Places to stop going to, series to stop watching, stop being around a particular person or particular group, block a particular website, or delete a particular app. The goal in this is to stay close to God. The, the materials in the tabernacle, they became purer as you approached God in his throne and in his presence. And it's the same for us. When we're close to him, he reveals the dross and the darkness that needs dealing with, but he doesn't leave us there. He lovingly draws us closer and provides us with his spirit as a guide and as a helper his word to direct and to teach us, and his church to support and encourage us. The last book of the Bible, Revelation, again touches on the imagery of the tabernacle as it shows us our future, what is to come. And one thing that is mentioned in Revelation is the altar of incense, like that in the tabernacle. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people on the golden altar in front of the throne. 
Anyone spot what's missing? There's no curtain. In the tabernacle, the incense altar did stand in front of the throne, but there was a veil. There was a curtain. There is complete and free access to God on his throne. That is what the church enjoys today. That is what the church enjoys today. Free access into the divine throne room. Let's live in light of that, church. Let's live in light of that. It's probably good for me to finish off the theme of God's dwelling place. Because I've mentioned it several times and it unifies the story. We've had the Garden of Eden, we've had the tabernacle, the temples, Jesus, the church. And then we turn to the last pages of the Bible. We do an Emily and we look at the last page. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, look. God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Look, God's dwelling place is now among his people. In the end, God once again pitches his tent with us in an intimate and close communion and fellowship. God with us. I'm going to invite the band up and we're going, to, we're going to sing praise together as we reflect on this. The book of Exodus ends with the tabernacle constructed and God enters the tabernacle, but Moses can't enter in. And we're going to find out next week why, as we look at the priesthood with Andy. But know this, if you're a Christian this morning, you have access used to have a, when I worked at the airport, I used to have a badge that said access all areas. Bright red, and it was great. Could go through every door, bang, straight through. Yeah, access all areas. If you're a believer in Christ, if you're in him, you have full access. You can enter the throne room, the most holy place, the place where God dwells, because that veil does not stand in front of you anymore. The curtain is gone. Is there a curtain in your life that you think is, is in front of you? It's not there. It's gone. The curtain is gone if you've trusted in Jesus. He's brought you in. He's brought you close. He's turned, he turns around and says, ah, friend, come in. No fear, no worries, no concerns, no insecurities. You can stand in awe of him, the one who angels worship and cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who makes the mountains rise and the oceans fall, whose, whose voice makes the earth tremble, you can behold his splendor and stand in awe of him. So let's worship as we prepare to commune with him.